0: and welcome to the plants and pipettes podcast we're back for another week another fortnight something like that after yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) which also dear listener is the entire amount of notes that yarm has in the intro section he wrote yeah (laughs) and that is apparently what he's been doing with his life yeah, Aaron, I, what's happening?
1: I I really don't have anything exciting to tell. We had a big event at work that was uh, taking a lot of my energy, but this it's not interesting enough to talk about it here. I will actually mention something <laughs> that I learned at one of like we had to had, had two events back to back, and at one of the events I learned something interesting that uh, that I will share later today. Uh, but now is not the time. It's an information for a later point point in time. But you did something exciting, Tegan. This you is should tell like, us.
0: Weirdly enigmatic for you, I would say. Uh, I mean, I was in the US, so that was my first time in the United States of America. I've been to, like, the greater Americas once before to Montreal, but this was my first time in the US of A. Um, And how was it? It was good. It was definitely, like, there were some things that were, like, very American. Like, when I got to the airport, there was a sign reminding people not to bring their guns through the security for the airport, which I guess... I, I don't know like I mean I guess I don't feel so stupid that I sometimes forget my my scissors in my bag anymore because apparently some people are forgetting their handguns in their bags so it's fine um there was something like that There was like amazing snacks so I think just the the food and produce there is just I'm sorry Europe it's just better than Europe they just have as it turns out you if you have more sun in your country
1: where, you could, where, At where where what parts uh did you end up
0: i was on the east coast so i was in new york for a week and before that i was in north carolina for a week so i have sort of friends and family slash in-laws in those areas um but i think it's just like they have a big country and you can get different climates um so you can have there, there was a thing so i got back i got back from the us and i was talking to my new housemate and he's like oh by the way i was like what's been happening in like what's been happening in the uk since i've been away He's like oh we can't buy tomatoes anymore I was like, what? He's like, yeah, we have, we have food shortages now. That's the thing. I was like, Yo, okay, we had the egg things a couple of months ago and apparently there was some disease. Or Now we can't get tomatoes. Like there's been, I guess you know about this, there's been like some drought and then plus the cost of electricity means it's less affordable to do greenhouse growth. So we just now can go to the store and we don't see tomatoes and other things like peppers as well, like these kind of basic.
1: Yeah, but we do have them still in Europe. It's just Brexit. Like, It's just...
0: Okay, part of it's probably also Brexit, Um, but yeah, that was, this was a conversation, and they're like, yeah, so now there was apparently some politician in the UK who told people that they should be eating the foods that you, we should stop relying on foods from outside of the UK, we should just be eating traditionally UK foods which is turnips so then apparently people took his advice and everybody's like yes we're going to be patriotic and eat turnips or i don't know maybe they are just taking the piss and they're like yes we're going to take the piss and eat turnips and then the stores also ran out of turnips (laughs) and i think that's (laughs) that's the state of the uk in fairness also in europe i remember at one time our work canteen had this thing i think I've, i've already complained about this in the podcast they had a thing where they were encouraging us to eat regionally and seasonally which like is something that you and i are both pretty pro, theoretically. Um, Mm. But then when they showed us what the seasonal things were and it was like October, November, December, January, February, March, cabbage, 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 we were like, hmm maybe let's import some mangoes (laughs) like
1: no to be fair like yeah maybe like stuff that has to come by airplane uh, is not great but apart from that um that's something that i never get tired of telling there's like a very good chart on our world in data that shows the ecological like the co2 footprint of foods uh different kinds of food and broken down by what part of its life cycle from like production, like the, like feeding the cows and having the cows and the emissions of the cows and slaughtering them and transporting them. And that also for all kinds of vegetables. And the transport part is always like tiny, like the, the footprint of any kind of food is mostly mm. defined not by its transport. So if you grow something regionally, but in a greenhouse that you have to heat or that you have to ventilate and like spend more energy than, than having a field... Then that's that makes problem. it energetically yeah. worse than transporting it from a place that's warmer and then hauling it on a truck all across Europe. Um, mm. So that's why I think like there's some other benefits for regional stuff. Like you don't get uh, you get like a more um, robust food network. Like right now, like the main growing parts in Spain had these problems, and I think they had like less amounts yeah, that they have- could produce, and therefore they wouldn't send them to. To great britain because it's too much trouble with brexit so they send it to the easy markets and that's why i can still buy cucumbers and paprika and all of this stuff um, but uh, i mean they're quite expensive like you pay over two euros now for a cucumber when it used to be like 90 cents a year ago so we also see it in the price but still the shelves are full uh mm. we, we don't run out of food um and yeah with more local growth you can avoid this kind of like dependency on a single growing uh, growing area mm. But anyway, not.
0: that was my whole thing of saying there's no turnips in UK now. And there <laughs> was, I don't know, I didn't actually try turnips in the US because I didn't go to the US to eat turnips. I went to eat pretzels, which had were crunchy little small pretzel bites with peanut butter inside them. That was basically, I had my first Pop-Tart. I had sort of like burgers. I did all of the... The US things that, you know, like all this stuff that you've seen growing up on TV and you haven't had them probably for also good reasons. I think like some of these things actually just banned in Europe. Yeah, Uh,
1: (laughs) a lot of them are. Like I'm on the side of TikTok of of US Americans saying that uh, they thought they had lots and lots of food allergies and they went to Europe and ate all of these foods and suddenly they were fine. Um, and they realize that it's like food additives in the US that uh, give them trouble. I mean, like,
0: we allow most of those food additives in Australia, and I'm mostly fine. So it's, it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, I mean, also like being scientific about this, uh, when you travel abroad, like your whole digestive system gets often more like exercise as well because you're like traveling around and moving around. And that's the that other thing also, I don't know.
0: Like, we're not doctors. I don't know if we know that's a thing.
1: I mean, that's like that some doctor said that in a reply on TikTok. I'm just like, I, mean, I also signs. always
0: get violently ill every time I travel just because. because. Because I'm in a tiny, like, metal cabin with thousands (laughs) of people and breathing in their fumes. So I don't know if that's. Yeah. Sure. I I, like, please don't. This is not a medical advice podcast. I think we've established that now. (laughs) Um, The US has nice food. Uh, New York was insanely expensive. Um, No, it was good times, honestly. I think February is probably the worst time to visit any place in the Northern Hemisphere, but it was still pretty good. So that's
1: that's nice. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Very nice. (laughs) Shall we talk about some plant signs? This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, speaking of pr- food production systems, um, I found a study that looked Ooh. at uh, the impact of gardening on biodiversity in urban agro-ecosystems. So you have buildings uh-huh. Uh-huh. and you grow fruit and vegetables and okay. you look at the ecosystems around them and the story is fairly uh, fairly short it's they, they looked at what is the impact of, of having urban gardens and growing food there for biodiversity. And is is growing food there worse than doing other things with the land? For example, um, mm-hmm. just having like in general places for biodiversity to, uh, to, to happen. I don't know, parks or greeneries and stuff. And they found that there's no harm done by having urban gardens that are grown for like where you have agro ecosystems going on. And they are actually quite beneficial as a refuge for all kinds of animals and so on. So unfortunately, I only could read the abstract and a little like press release about this thing. so I couldn't look at all of the um, the papers and the figures, but they overall found that, in the, in these gardens, you would then have sort of safe havens for insects or small mammals, uh, where they can take take refuge uh, in in the city life uh, and find food, uh, find places to pollinate, and and so on. And so overall, it's beneficial to have these small gardens. And I mostly pick that story as a small little plug for our plant book club, where unfortunately you couldn't be a part of because you were traveling. Um, mm-hmm. But there we read The Garden Jungle by Dave Golson, which talks in in large parts about the same thing, about the importance of gardening for ecosystems and as refuges for... Uh, for animals uh in the book he talks a lot about insects but also about like um smaller and bigger uh, mammals and um yeah this story this this paper multiple ecosystem service synergies and landscape mediation of biodiversity within urban agroecosystems sort of supports that thing that's written in the book and it's sort of nice to have this study because the book doesn't have that many um uh, citations in, in it where you can look this up so i know i have like a th- outside of the book a third party citation mm-hmm. that supports the things that I said in the book so if you are interested in this paper you find that link below if you're interested in the book we're also linking to the plant book club where we talked about this topic at length and also some some of the cool stuff about the book and some of the not so cool stuff about the book
0: So talking about food vaguely and a little bit more disgustingly talking about foods, um, I want to mention something about figs and one of their disgusting attributes, which I think, Joram, you're already familiar with, right?
1: Yeah, most of them in the wild, not so many in com- commercially grown figs, are uh, pollinated by wasps that crawl inside there, lose their wings while entering, laying their eggs there, having the the wasps hatch, fertilize each other with, inside the thing, crawling out again, and... Um, then the whole the rest of the fig develops and sort of all of the wasp bits disintegrate and are away gone when you open the fig later when it's ripe, um, but very central to its life cycle is this wasp fig relationship.
0: Yeah, you've actually like removed one of the even more disgusting um, parts, which is the incest thing. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> crawl in, have young sex with the males and females together and then females crawling out like, yeah, a lot of disgusting, juicy things happening. And this is like the the standard case for figs. So there's, you know, 800 or so species of figs. And for like most of them, this um, pollination requires these fig wasps and they've co-evolved for a very long time. It's at least 60 million years that they've been doing this together for. um, And they now have this really disgusting codependency. so this is a fact that Yoro and I both know because it came up on one of our favorite podcasts, No Such Thing as a Fish, I think. I think that's where we probably both heard it a while back. And it's one of those things where, like, as a plant scientist, when I hear plant science facts, I'm like, no, I don't know about this. How can this be true? And that was just one where I was like, no, this is disgusting. Like, the figs I'm eating do not have wasps in them. They don't have dissolved wasps in them. I I morally object to all of this no and like realistically i'm not actually against eating insects it just sounds like a bit gross i think i mean i i would e- i eat insects it's fine um but this does sound extra smushy right yeah so then the question is you just said something that you were like well actually does this happen and you said that in s- commercial varieties not necessarily
1: yeah at least i think we also wrote about it on the blog at one point and um there i looked it up and i thought fu- that there was sort of reassurances from the fig growers that said like yeah it's true about the the wasp fig relationship but not in the wasps uh, in in the figs that we sell the the wasps that we sell barely have any figs in them um so the so they said that they have like bred some varieties that are i think self-pollinating or something that don't require the wasp interaction
0: Yeah, so apparently humans have been propagating these parthenocarpic, so it's like this virgin fruit, so they they don't require this this fig. Um, And we've been cultivating that for a long time and a lot of the edible figs that we have are these ones that don't require the wasps and therefore are not, yeah, filled with wasps. Um, Having said that, (laughs) the reason I came back onto this subject is actually because my boyfriend shared with me a really cool blog post but again if you don't like thinking about things inside your food maybe don't read it and it's by colin purrington and it's some insects i found inside dried Turkish figs from traders joe's and basically he was i'm going to assume he i hope that's right um they were doing a a wasp identification course online and people were discussing this issue of the fig wasps and then they thought, you know what, I'm going to just buy some fig and have a look. And in the very first fig they opened, like two seconds in, they found some definite wasp. And they went Uh through and they found like quite a lot of different wasps in a lot of different figs um, as well as some actually kind of maybe more disgusting things, some some fungusy things as well. They do mention that this was specifically in the organic figs, so that might be part of the issue um, mm-hmm. that it's more insect-friendly, which yes, plus or minuses involved there. Um, but anyway, I, I recommend reading this if you're interested in this kind of thing. And there's also a link from that blog that then goes into um, botan- Botanist in the Kitchen, and it's discussing how figs and mulberries are basically the same thing. So a fig is not really a fruit. It's A cluster of flowers that has grown inside a stem so like the fleshy part is kind of the stem and those inside bits that's the inflorescence right which makes sense if you open a fig Mm -hmm. you can actually see that so they say you know a fig is actually an inside out mulberry they're kind of the same thing they're actually true cousins mulberries they look like blackberries but they're really fig berries um and it discusses it's it's a really nicely written blog um it's quite sexy for a blog about plant science um the descriptions of (laughs) Figs and mulberries being both gorgeous, sexy fruits in very different ways. Um I would really recommend the read of this. It's just like a pleasant read, but it also has some really great information about sort of the, the botany background and some more things about this disgusting sexy fig relationship with the wasps. There's a recipe at the bottom. That's a,
1: yeah, that sounds fascinating.
0: Links in show notes
1: Yeah. Uh, not for me, so I can't look at it right now, but uh, Tiger <laughs> will eventually share it with us. Um,
0: <laughs> Sometimes, Joram, I feel like if I share with you, you scroll and you read things instead of listening to my beautiful voice.
1: From passive-aggressive remarks to uh, the Korean demilitarized zone. <laughs> no, you're supposed zone.
0: to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it's quite funny. Thank you can keep it.
1: Um, there has been a feature on Google Arts and Culture about uh, the uh, Korea's demilitarized zone, and what I didn't know is how large it is. Um, so between North and South Korea, there's a big stretch of land that's demilitarized, and uh, we've talked about this uh, in the past quite often. Uh, what happened the, the the special properties that you find in uh, military grounds? So there's a 300 kilometer wide stretch of land between Mm -hmm. the two Koreas. Um, That no one can go into. Yeah, that no one can go into. There's no human activity there. It's it's almost completely untouched. And therefore, it's a um, diversity... I don't know if it's like a traditional diversity hotspot, but there's lots and lots of specific diversity for Korea there. So there's lots of plants and uh, animals there that you only find there and that they can thrive in that environment and where there's no disturbances from the outside because both countries agreed to not enter this stretch of land and uh google uh, google in this arts and culture section has also a uh, paragraph about the plants that you find there and so there you can look at some of the uh, images of different plants that are specific to that area like the korean necklace pod uh, the goemgang bluebell what is it
0: called a necklace pod
1: yeah necklace pod it's an indigenous cool. species that looks to me it looks like um there's this the 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 easter yellow eastery flowers in Germany we call them osterglocken. I have no idea what they are in English um the flowers have like the same yellow colour, but the growth of the flower is quite different um but yeah, you can play around there and look at all kinds of different um plants and also like the the they have a whole special about the DMZ. They have some um, street view on the accessible paths that exist uh, at the edges of the demilitarized zone. So you can sort of do virtual walks around the area and you can dive deeper into the history and culture and also into the plant world. And uh, I just thought it's quite cool and wanted to share that here so that you can like play around and look a little bit at the different rare plants and animals that you find there like some specific like uh, korean otters or mountain goats that you only find in this area
0: speaking of things that are rare and possibly extinct it's not really extinct um things that are kind of collected so you're. Jor- um, do you know what museomics is
1: museomics um i mean omics is always the study of large scale data sets in some um, like for we have transcriptomics where we study all of the RNA. We have proteomics where we study all of the proteins in a cell. Um, genomics where we entire study the entire genome. So
0: museomics, the entirety of museum collections. Pretty close, actually. I mean, it's more from like museum plus genomics. So it's basically people looking at museum collections, including sort of taxidermied animals, but also obviously herbarium samples um, and using that to get DNA from these samples. So basically, for a long time, we've been going around the world and collecting all the things and putting them in museums um, for better or for worse. We now have really a ton of samples that are there. Um, and often some of them are well-preserved, some of them are not so well-preserved. In the case of plants, things are often dried, but maybe we have some seeds as well. Sometimes things are put in the freezer and all of these different things. Um, but there's there's a whole lot of information that's in the museums and not that much has been done with it um, until more recently. So this is like a massively growing field. I think it's partially been encouraged maybe by the COVID pandemic because people started reaching more for, trying to access um, samples that they already had, sort of delving deeper into things that they did get access to when there was access cut off from other things like the lab and the field. But I think realistically, maybe that's just my spin on it. Realistically, it's also a growing field because it's something where the methods have gradually been expanding and that's really increased what we can do. So getting DNA out of old samples is always a little bit problematic because DNA does tend to degrade over time. It's it's fairly stable compared to things like RNA, but it does, you know, break down. It gets shears, it gets mutations. Um, so getting these samples has always been a little bit tricky. And historically speaking, when we've looked at these kind of historical DNA samples, it's mostly been focused on using mitochondrial DNA, which I think is just because I was like, a ton of it so there's more likely to be some of it intact but now we're getting to the stage where we have the techniques and the tools and you know the machines and stuff and we can start to get much more detailed information from these preserved samples hmm So just some semantics here, there's two different terms. They're used a little bit interchangeably, it seems like, but there's ancient DNA and historic DNA. So historic DNA is usually the stuff that is found in these collections. So it's about, you know, less than 200 years old, the last couple of hundred years of people collecting and preserving. Whereas ancient DNA tends to be these kind of, as suggested, old things that like might be found in a woolly mammoth in the wild. So like going more into historical time, and usually they're much more highly degraded, and you know, in trace amounts, as opposed to being a, a fuller sample. Um, they also mentioned in the paper that there's another thing that could be like old DNA, but it's actually not really historic DNA, and that's if you just had a sample that you found in the back of your your freezer for it's been, you know. They I that, had lots, and <laughs> lots of old
1: DNA then.
0: <laughs> yeah so they said like for example um there's a recent museumic study where they successfully got DNA from tissues that were collected in the 80s so it's 40 years ago now but they were like well this is kind of modern DNA because it wasn't you know it was it was frozen so it was a bit less less likely to be degraded less of the challenges associated with historic DNA But anyway, these these studies have now been used massively to help sort of understand where species originate from, sort of looking at the different species interactions, especially where there's um, relationships between things that have gone extinct. Um, So like phylogenetic trees as well, understanding how things have evolved. Um, Look at the biogeographic history, so where things once belonged. Um, Also understanding how populations have changed in their genetics. So if there's been like loss of genetic diversity, like genetic erosion kind of things. Um, yeah, taxonomic confusion between specimens, um, and even looking at things like epigenetics. Um, one of the cool examples related to plants is that they will have also been used to understand things like the domestication of highly valuable crop species. So the example that was shown in the review paper I was looking at um, is that of the cocoa plant in South America. So this is not cocoa, this is coca. So the the cocaine one, not the chocolate one. Um, and there was a study that came out, I think in 2021, which looked at all of these different museum samples to try and understand where cocoa was domesticated from because it's obviously a highly valuable plant. It was also very um, important, like sort of sacred. It had like very high medicinal value. Um, and across South America, it's sort of come up many times. So lots of different groups of people were using it. And there was this interest in understanding how it got domesticated and, you know, what was the wild progenitor and who domesticated it, when and where, and whether it's happened multiple different times. So in the study, they sequenced 400 nuclear um, genes from tissue samples that were, 90% of them came from these historical museum collections. And they were able to use that to look at the different genetic structures of four different cocoa varieties and their wild relatives and then use that to understand how these events happen. So basically who domesticated what when which I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah it's really cool also that it sort of gives an alternative approach to to lots and lots of field work that can like first of all be difficult but also sometimes be harmful for the places that you do the field work in um, if you want to find sort of relatives of an organism that you want to study and and looking into museum collections and finding data there uh, that's already collected that's already present that might be a little bit challenging to extract and um, but overall I think it's a really cool resource to tap into.
0: I think it's kind of an interesting thing of this you know when we started getting all these big sequencing methods like the omics phase we suddenly hit this huge problem where it's like oh now we have too much data and we don't know how to analyze that there was this mm-hmm. data problem and now we're sort of saying oh look we actually also had a lot of samples i mean there's, this has always been the case museums and, and herbariums they've had a lot of samples that we also haven't had that we've always had this problem of there's too much to analyze there's too much to get and it's really cool that people are doing it it's, it's also cool that yeah we have the techniques and tools so obviously the the evolution of sequencing techniques is also a really important part of this this process but yeah it's definitely something that is growing i've seen a lot more studies looking at these kind of ancient sources or these historical sources and i guess we'll get a lot more on it as well
1: Yeah, and that's actually a very good segue to my next topic, Um, the problem of having too much data and having to analyze it. And as an introduction to this, I, as I said, had these work events going on and I'm working now a lot in open source software funding and therefore talk to people who make open source software. And I got a chance to talk to Laura Lübert, who is a PhD student in biology. And she used to be a wet lab scientist and then... um, had to uh, work out a, a pipeline to analyze her data sets. and like that so much that she became a bioinformatician. And now she's developing an open source tool. And that's what what I want to talk about. It's called G-GET um, that helps you to query lots and lots of different genomic reference databases. And
0: Sorry, G, G-GET, so like the letter G and then yeah, GET? Yeah, okay. it's like...
1: Yeah, there's like a, uh, I think a wget um, command in a in a terminal shell um, when you want to access URLs. And gget is sort of the same thing. Instead of like getting from the web, get it from the genome databases. Mm-hmm. Um, And like the technical details, they are are also like too in depth for me. But it's she I talked to her for a bit and she told me she had exactly the same problem that now she's doing single cell transcriptomics. So she works in um, human cell lines or animal cell lines, um, but in sort of non plants. And what you do there very often now is that you have your cell culture and then you do full blown transcriptome analysis. Uh, from single cells and then you get not only like all of the rna information from one organism but you get it from almost every cell within that sample that you sampled there Mm -hmm. so you get this like multi-dimensional huge data set that's really really hard to look at because right now we're at a point where we don't have very solid tools for that and she's part of the people who are developing these sort of tools. Um, And one of the things that she developed looking at that is this open source tool. And so I just thought it's cool to share that because uh, I don't know how applicable it is yet for for plant science, but it looked like you can query all sorts of like general genomic databases that are also relevant for plants. And uh, because I know we have like a couple of people working in labs listening to this, so maybe for them it's interesting, but I just really liked... Um, talking to Laura and hearing how she became like, turned from like wet lab scientist uh, uh, to open source software developer, uh, uh, open source software developer, um, just, to wrangle all of the data just like from this very cool method where you can look into every single cell but suddenly you look into every single cell and have to make sense of it and you have to write your own tools you have to write your own code to figure out what to do with this data set um, I find that really cool and really fascinating it's I, impressive huh? yeah yeah So we're linking to the paper that she then actually also like, she she published like a little tool. She didn't think much of it. And then it got like super popular with like tens of thousands of downloads. And then um, she was actually able to publish it in a paper then um, properly peer reviewed um, as well. And she's still a PhD student. And I I found that very, very impressive. So really cool.
0: I, I have another thing that's a bit about organization and informational chaos, And it's a publication that came out a couple of weeks ago or in the last couple of weeks um, in Nature Communications. And it's basically dealing with the problem with walnuts. So do you know what the problem with walnuts is, Joram?
1: Apart from that they're my least favorite nut. uh, I don't know. Maybe do they rot a lot? We have a walnut tree and almost all of the nuts are rotten. So maybe that's a problem.
0: I think that's one of those situations where it's on me for making too broad a problem. <laughs> What's the problem with walnuts, Yarem? <laughs> well, for me, personally, I don't like the color. Um, so the problem with walnuts is actually that nobody can work out who is who in the walnut family. So the walnut family is Juglandaceae. It's got 63 different species, which are found within eight different genre. Um, and some of them are really, really valuable. So even though Yarem hates walnuts, he's not representative of the entire world and in fact like Chinese iron walnut and Persian walnuts are two of like the most valuable nut producing crops across the whole world and there's also pecans which are in the same families which I think you should agree are delicious in fact
1: Uh, yeah pecans are amazing
0: pecans are in fact delicious and also hickory nuts which I don't know who knows what those are apparently also (laughs) valuable and then people also like walnut wood like that's also quite pretty so Overall, we kind of care about walnuts, not just because they are, I don't know, unique biological entities, but because they have real commercial value to humans. And that's what this podcast is all about. Um, But (laughs) as I mentioned, they're a little bit of a mess and nobody really knows what the relationship between one walnut family or one walnut species to the others in this whole family are. So despite a lot of molecular studies over the last 20 years, Everything's unclear and at least six different phylogenetic topographies have come up. So six different ways people think walnut trees, like the family tree of walnuts looks. Um and these differences come about even though many of those studies have actually kind of gone to the same sequences. So quite often when we look at the relationships, we look at certain genes across a whole lot of plants. So we we look at a gene called MATK in the chloroplast quite commonly. Mm-hmm. Um This was used here, but um, unclear, still unclear. So (laughs) the genetics have been problematic in the past. Another thing you can do when you're trying to work out who belongs where is look at the plant itself. Just go out there and like have a little gander and say, oh, this one's got nice long leaves. That other one's got long leaves. Looks cool but that also hasn't helped um there's one species in particular that is an east asian endemic called Platicaria strobilaceae i think the Platicaria probably means that it has flat leaves um is that right somebody check it's, it's, my latin
1: it sounds like it <laughs>
0: anyway it's called enigmatic it's the enigmatic east asian endemic because nobody knows where where it belongs it's it's got cone like fruit, which nobody else in the family has. Um, but then there's fossils from this genus that have these really special types of leaves. Um, and then the ones that are still around, the extant species of this genus, Platicaria, they have these very thin nut walls, um, which look like another group. And then they have a certain type of pollen. And then people went and looked at like the old fossil taxa. And this. These guys, they just don't fit in anywhere. It just, it just didn't help. So, looking at the genes wasn't that helpful. I mean, it was somewhat helpful, but it, six different kinds of helpful. Looking at the looks was also not very helpful. Um, and part of the problem with this whole family is that there's been an ancient whole genome duplication that has happened back in the family. It's called the Juglandoid. Whole genome duplication. Basically, it applies to this whole family, and it just means there's a lot more genetic material than there really needs to be, which makes things very hard. So, um, this is really common in plant species. They like to double things. They just occasionally like to like jump in and add another duplication. But as we've discussed before, when you get these duplication events, you then have like weird things happening. You know, there's there's double of some genes, so some genes go off and specialise, and others stay the same, and you have to work out how to control the amounts, and so it can. Mix things up post-duplication, which can also make dating the relationships quite tricky. Um, On top of that, another really common thing that plants love to do is that these species like to hybridize with each other. So it's possible that there's been lots of integration. So mixing and matching from one species with its sister or cousin, which again makes it kind of hard to work out who came from where and when things doubled and when things halved again and when they mixed and, and so on so the solution that this paper used was basically to not look at the information in the genes itself not look at the letters of the code but to simply look at the physical location of those genes on the chromosomes so -hmm. we're basically just like looking at this kind of very higher level blueprint of where the genes are on the chromosomes and how they differ next to each other from species to species as well as presence and absence from species to species and they did this and they've you got a whole new phylogeny, which they think has resolved the phylogeny of the Walnut family. Um, so it's kind of a nice, it's a nice method. It's a nice thing that they've done. As part of that, they also then look at, based on this new phylogeny, how DNA substitution rates have have changed from species to species. So this is another way we can use to work out relationships. You can say, if we assume that once every this many times this letter changes to this letter we can guess that there's been this many million years between species A and species B, right? This is um, a thing called molecular clock dating.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. I I know it as like the, the, the SNP genotyping, like the single nucleotide polymorphism, where you know that at a certain position, you have often a mutation that's silent, so it doesn't actually result in a change in the protein that's made um, but you can track these mutations between individuals and then um, before we were doing whole genome sequencing a lot we were using lots and lots of snip analysis i know that because i worked in a like a company that did this mm-hmm. sort of analysis and then they had to change business when whole genome sequencing got really cheap. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like these like individual letters. And you can say, okay, at one point this typo was introduced and you can track back the typo across the phylogeny. And so you know everything that has the same typo probably is in one line to another. And then you do that with lots and lots of typos and then you can build this tree.
0: Yeah, so as you remember, you can build the tree, but you can also even guess the time, like the yep. evolutionary time scales, because you know roughly the mutation rate. So the, the the quick definition I stole from Wiki is, molecular clock is a term for a technique that uses the mutation rate of biomolecules, in this case, we're saying the DNA, to deduce the time in prehistory when two or more life forms diverged. So basically that. Um, Cool story. The The conclusion of this paper is that we should not be trusting this necessarily, especially when it comes to these tricky, tricky walnuts. Um, basically, they show that there was dramatic post-polyploid, so after they've been doing this duplication, evolutionary slowdowns. Um, so things doubled and then they changed the rate at which they were doing this mutation, which basically says we can no longer trust using these mutation rates for mapping the phylogenies which again is part of the messiness of the whole family so (laughs) anyway um another example of how we as humans really like to categorize things and of course it's useful of course it has a lot of value for us um but nature is a messy (laughs)
1: yeah and sometimes it's really hard to define the boxes that you can put Mm. then the stuff in and then you have to like make completely new sets of boxes um from from walnuts that i don't like to something that all only people who are in the wrong don't like um licorice Ew. um you like it don't you like no, i know I we not. had it in the lab sometimes as a, like a post lunch snack uh i yeah so you hated. I it remember i remember somebody
0: it. eating like an inhi- entire box of colorado haribos
1: i i can eat it um i can eat my own body weight in, in licorice <laughs> um
0: <laughs> disgusting You know, the good thing about licorice is it also makes you poop. So if you do eat your body weight in licorice.
1: (laughs) You're also getting rid of it again quickly. (laughs) Not a long
0: term problem. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah. So uh, often or like when we when we eat licorice and um, prepare foods from it, we use the roots. Uh, We dig up the roots, grind them down, do whatever sort of black magic to it. And then we get delicious licorice candies. Now researchers looked at the whole plant and did uh, extract from the leaves and they simply like dried the leaves and ground them up, then extracted them with ethanol, so with alcohol, and concentrated that a little bit and then had like a strong like, liquid with the with the leaf extract and they watered that down to like a 2% solution and sprayed that directly on plants and looked at what happens there. And they found that the licorice leaf extract, is actually a fairly good pesticide. It kills um, the test um, bacteria pseudomonas syringi, in lab assays um, more efficient than a simple two percent alcohol solution would um, it even kills some fungi that are problematic and it tr- triggers the internal stress response from the plants that are sprayed as well so through the ethylene and salicy- uh, salicylic acid pathway sort of two very common pathways for stress responses they are triggered and therefore sort of the the plant gets in a higher state of alert and can fend off attackers more easily itself as well so this is still like lab results they did that in Arabidopsis and tomato plants in greenhouses so we can't immediately go and say okay get rid of all pesticides we have licorice uh, juice now but um, it looks quite promising um, that it's more effective however it's a contact uh, pesticide that means only like the bacteria and fungi are killed when they get the pesticide but it doesn't do anything to sort of uh, it doesn't stick long enough to the plants or um, doesn't prime the plants in any way that they are actually long-term or resistant so you can't spray it on there at the beginning of the growing season and then be done with it um, you would have to apply it maybe when you see an infection when you see a problem arise and you can then you potentially could spray that and um, have an organic alternative to, for example, copper-containing pesticides that are used in organic agriculture when you have to deal with fungi. So potentially a cool pesticide. I mainly like the story because it shows that licorice is not only delicious, but it's also a good, potentially, maybe uh, a good pesticide.
0: I mean, surely the take-home message is that licorice not only stresses humans out, it also stresses bugs out, fungi out, bacteria out, and plants. Like, it also stresses the plants out. The plant had to put up defenses when it had any contact with the licorice.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say this- that if you are stressed out by licorice, maybe you are uh, a bacterium, a fungus, or a bug, or a sad little Arabidopsis plant. Um, so maybe it's a you problem. <laughs>
0: Um, Speaking of things that we extract from plants, um, one of my things I want to mention is that (laughs) I...
1: No? No, we're so good this week. We're so good with the segues. We're
0: so so terrible about this and we apologize. I am not apologizing. I apologize. (laughs) Um... Yeah, what was my fact? My fact was that I went to a talk some weeks ago about the science behind ADHD, and I did not enjoy the talk. It was not scientific. I was very angry. Um, but I did learn some interesting facts. And the first one is, do you know Ritalin, which is the drug for for ADHD? Do you know why it's called Ritalin?
1: Oh, no, I have no idea.
0: Because the the guy who invented it, he first tested it out on his wife, Margarita. <laughs> This is with, not related with to plants. consent. I just wanted to put I we don't know. I mean, was there even consent between a man and a wife in these days? Who actually knows? I mean um, when
1: when did they discover it in the nineteen eighties or in a, <laughs> in the forties, I guess. Okay.
0: It's not super so it apparently was used to compensate f- to compensate for low blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a stimulant, right? So I guess that, that makes sense. It was I mean, I'm sure it was helpful. And it was a chemist doing this, not a random person trying things out on his wife but you know still i think I'm, I'm hoping the days of testing things out on our loved ones as the first port of call is done mm-hmm. um more related to plants i also found out about the background of a different drug i'm going to tell you the plant name and see if you can work out what the drug is ephedra dystachia do you know what the drug is
1: uh
0: ephedrine. exactly
1: it's like, it's a, um adrenaline uh, alternative thing, analog, right? Like it's, no. Yeah, no, I mean. It, yeah, I don't know. I, I I shouldn't be talking about human medicine. I have no idea.
0: I mean, yeah, ephedrine, it's, it's, it's a stimulant. So it's, again, this thing that you can use to prevent the low blood pressure, but also, you know, it stimulates you. And it's also like basically crystal meth. So it's, you know the derivative is crystal meth it's also related to like pseudoephedrine is this one we use for decongestant i think that's like a couple of chemical steps away i feel like i think i learned in one of my first chemistry courses that you could turn pseudoephedrine into meth in just two chemical steps maybe
1: yeah that's why it's so such a controlled substance in pharmacies and in many like i think for example in germany it's actually very hard to get it used to be i think think in the united states and maybe i think you told me in australia as well an over-the-counter driver's
0: license yeah Um, i mean we all we all watched um breaking bad right that was what he was but like he had had a cooler
1: process he made like the blue meth because he used an alternative he didn't buy like the the cough medicine and grind it up he had like cool chemistry teacher knowledge i don't know
0: okay so the plant itself i've got to say not that exciting it's probably exciting i just didn't do enough research but it's a little shrubby thing um it's the first source that we got ephedrine from we're talking about human stuff and as you mentioned you should ignore all of that so let's any of the health things we mention are probably not true um only listen to us about plants and even then <laughs> green of <and> salt guys <laughs> um so yeah shrubby little plant that the effort dream was first isolated from, but what I didn't realize it is that it was isolated back in the 1880s. It's like a super long time ago and it's isolated by Nagayoshi Nagai. Um, he has kind of a cool background where he actually visited Germany. Um, professor of chemistry and pharmacy and was very interested in like understanding the chemical background of different traditional herbal medicines from both Japan and China so this kind of makes sense how he went down this pathway of isolating the ephedrine. I just want to mention that while in Germany I'm sorry I'm only mentioning this because I want to make fun of you Yarm. While in Germany he married a German um and on the return to Japan, she became professor of German language, which is cool. But she also actively introduced German food and culture to Japan, which I'm oh. going to quietly leave right there. And now I'm done. Okay, and cut the edit here. So I just, we just spent 10 minutes realizing I have nothing more to say about this topic of ephedrine. I found it interesting, but apparently it was interesting as a comment. There's There's not much else there. Some interesting things, but not podcast worthy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, interesting, I'm using in the suspicious them. Um, but Yoram did just mention something about Chat GPT in our conversation, and that reminded me that our other favorite podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, had the thing about political moss. Yeah. So their recent episode is called There's No Such Thing as Political Moss, and somebody asked Chat GPT to just come up with a story about political moss. And it formed this idea that political moss is moss and it's political because it grows where there's more pollution. So it became this like dividing symbol of like whether the cities were dirty and this whole. <laughs> yeah. And this is underlying the fact that this hallucination that these things can do is a little bit terrifying because it, it sounded quite feasible. It sounded like a thing that was. Yeah. I believe that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite like recent news of like chatbots was when bing introduced their version of ChatGPT to some journalists and a journalist talked to it and um it got really intense uh because uh, bing like, or google uh, the bing so I the microsoft bing was
0: using chat
1: yeah but they like they integrated it with the search engine so where chat gpt was had like a specific trained data set and uh, only knows stuff up to a certain point in time. They even say that on website. I don't know, like 2021, oh, yeah, 2021. or something. Yeah. Something like this. Um, the, the Bing version was supposed to be like a search engine with the chatbot in it. So it could grab stuff also from the web. And that made it like really, really weird to the point where like... Um, Told the journalist that it loved the journalist and that he should leave his wife for the <laughs> chatbot, and uh, lots and lots of really weird stuff. That it, like it really quickly jumped to it. They didn't have to like like poke it and and trigger it in a certain direction. Um, they just asked some like general stuff about how it works, and it very quickly completely derailed it, and was a <laughs> completely strange experience for but so- the journalist.
0: Sorry, that's not simple. If you're asking, you're asking how it works. You're basically like asking. The chatbot existential questions, yeah, and but- then it spun out and went into a crisis and had <laughs> literally a midlife crisis and tried to like run away with a hot younger person. Like, that's a normal <laughs> response that most humans, Like, if anything, that convinces me that it's more human because that's also like, if you if I ask you Yoram, what's your purpose for existing really right now? Like, why do you exist?
1: Uh, I I have to keep two humans alive. Two okay, small. Fine. Humans. You have
0: children. It's easier for you. You have children. <laughs> fine, <laughs> but you see my point. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah but i mean that's actually what some people are saying that like the the errors and the mistakes that they make they are things that humans would make Mm. but the problem arises from us giving this this machine some sort of trust because we think it's a machine that's built with code and code doesn't lie and therefore it tells us the truth and it lies to our face just as much as humans do because it's trained on human interactions where humans lie to one another but if you, if you ask somebody to make up a story and they make up a story, then you you know that, like, it might be true, it might not be true. Um, and with humans, you have to sort of build in a sort of... Uh, tells. Yeah, tells. And also, like, you're careful about what somebody's... I mean, sometimes, like, people
0: yeah there's but there's cultural impressed. cues there's ways we do like even with sarcasm like sarcasm can be different difficult to translate across cultures and across languages which is part of the point of it like we do yeah in our local context we, we know the cues to pick up sarcasm which we don't know yeah i guess we don't know when the, and with the machine working. we
1: just think oh yeah it's a machine it doesn't lie and therefore when i ask it a question i get a truthful answer and we just don't
0: I think that's a really great way for me to segue onto the last thing of the day, which is my cat fact. Yarm, I know you have a cat fact. You can do one after, but I want to talk about cat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> because it's been like four weeks now that I'm holding on to this. Have you seen it yet? No. It makes me so happy. <laughs> it's the stupidest thing that has ever existed. <laughs> so it's called cat GPT at wvd.io. We're going to put the link in the show notes, obviously, but I know most of you are jumping out of your seats and want to play with it right now. So (laughs) it's, it's really what it sounds like. It's using chat GPT to make cat GPT, but it's just an icon of a cat that says meow, 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 meow. And then you can type something back to it so I can say hello, cat bot. So I put hello cat bot and the cat says meow, 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 meow. And I've played with this for more minutes than I care to admit. And no matter what you write in there, it just writes meow back in different ways. Unless you write meow. And then it writes imitation is a sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. And then it goes back to just saying meow at you, which I think is really great. Um, it's, I, I, I mean, I can explain why I think it's obvious why I love it, but I love it because it's the greatest complexity we have. Like, you know, chat GPT is like the thing we have in our current time. That's like the biggest, most caught, like it's amazing. And then somebody's used this in true internet fashion to just make a cat that says meow and then insults you. And then says, me, like, it's comic <laughs> genius. And if you're ever, you know, just share this, I think it just needs to be shared.
1: Yeah, I, I had a great time with it playing while we were talking and um, promising it some tuna and then saying that, that there isn't actually any tuna. And there were, were lots of meows in promise of the tuna and only two angry meows when I said there is no tuna.
0: I think you're actually giving, like you're over-interpreting it's meows because I think... No,
1: I think it's actually exactly what uh, the, the cat that's trapped inside the computer there thinks. <laughs> I think I, I, I talk to a real cat, I know. I have two cats, I can tell.
0: <laughs> all right i'm writing hello i hate you and then i'm writing hello i love you it's it seemed more reactive to me hating it than loving it <laughs> take from that what you will anyway this is um by w- 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 walter, walter sure. i think walter walter walter, walter van dyke um is the creator of cat gpt um Thank you very much. You've brought joy into my life.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really good. So I will actually not say my cat fact because you can't compete with that. So you'll have to wait until next week for that. Uh, or two weeks or whenever. Um, Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Should we try that again? <laughs> no. Um, so that's it for today. That today's. is
0: it. Goodbye.
1: <laughs> and that's it for this week um if you want to learn more about us <laughs> you can find more on our website that's plantsandpipettes.com there you can find more episodes and some cool blog posts that we wrote
0: on instagram and facebook it's at plants and Pipets, where you can reach out to us
1: on Mastodon, you can reach us at plants and pipettes at podcast.social and on twitter it's at plants
0: has anybody reached out to you on Mastodon?
1: uh let me check no, <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> and that's all. Please reach out to Yara and Mastodon and we'll see you next time. All the opening not, and that's... closing music was Caravana by Philip Gross.
1: <laughs> Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>